This week, our special voice forum. We'll take you through the exact wording of the proposed new chapter that a yes win would add to our constitution, and what other documents say about what would be next for land rights, for treaty, and for the unity of Australia. I'll be joined by three leading no supporters, one in their 60s, one in their 40s, and one in their 20s. To avoid any misinformation, we invited the yes campaign three times, but they turned us down. We'll tell you everything you need to know though before you vote. I think the Prime Minister has just been completely reckless and cavalier the way he's done this. Yeah, I think he's the whole, the, He hasn't attempted to prosecute a case. He hasn't attempted to, to consult. He's been slippery and tricky. Do you think it might not go down, Graham, being a pollster? Do you oh, think there's still a chance look, that I, yes could get up? Yeah, there is. Um, we need to it's be not a careful. strong chance, but Australians... So our favourite horse race is a handicap. Our, 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 yeah. be, our best known running race, the stall gift, is a handicap. The handicap yeah. We like the underdog. So it's an important warning to the no campaign that we, you know, people have got to get out there. They've got to uh, keep the campaign momentum going, turn up for those polling booth shifts. You never want to give in until you're over that finishing line first. And we know the Yes campaign has a lot of gas in the tank. We know they've got a lot of gas. A lot, $100 million worth of gas. Yeah. The tie is definitely changing a bit um, with students on campus, I would put that. Um, in this whole identity politics thing, I think uh, we, the young people are definitely seeing through it a little bit. You know, um, if, every day at uni you're told, you know, um, you, you know you, you've, you've invaded this country, um, you need to say sorry. Um, and I think people have been told, are sick and tired of being told that they're racist when they're not. G'day Wollongong, g'day Geelong. This is episode 226 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday, October 6, 2023. I'm Damien Curry, and welcome to the show. We'll get to our special voice panel in a moment. But first tonight, Thomas Sowell is one of the greatest thinkers of our time and one of my favourite people. If you don't know who he is, he is a 93-year-old professor of economics from the United States who's been prolific as a writer in his life. He now has a new book out. There's no stopping this man. He grew up in Harlem in New York. He served in the US Marine Corps. He got an undergraduate degree from Harvard, a master's from Columbia University, and a doctorate from the University of Chicago. Since 1977, he's been a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in San Francisco. Being 93 years old, it is priceless whenever Dr. Soule does a new interview. His new book is called Social Justice Fallacies, and he spoke to the Hoover Institute's Uncommon Knowledge podcast about it recently. Social justice. Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963, quote, I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. And you write, Dr. King's message was equal opportunity for individuals, regardless of race, in the years that followed, the goal changed to equal outcomes for groups. What now rose to dominance was the social justice agenda. If the social justice, those backing the social justice agenda could have everything they wanted, what would the country look like? Uh, we'd be killing each other. And he's not joking. Professor Sowell says equality of outcome is an insane objective for any political movement to try to enforce. His book demolishes many fallacies about social justice, one of them known as the chess piece fallacy. Well, Adam Smith uh, uh, had a very low opinion of abstract theorists who imagine that they can... Uh, control a, a whole society uh, with the ease with which one puts, uh, puts chess pieces where you want them on, the, on, a, on a chessboard. And so this, there's this notion of this inert mass of people down there and then the wonderfully brilliant people at the top who ought to be telling them what to do. And there's no thought that, uh, first of all, those at the top don't even know us, the people's uh, uh, individual conditions who are very different from themselves and when they try to help they make things they can make things disastrous when they try to help they can make things disastrous 
a wise and timely piece of advice for us all. Another social justice fallacy is the idea that government can achieve results by arranging things. But Professor Sowell says governments don't arrange things, they compel things. And it's not a subtle difference. Well, if you're going to try to get some kind of result, you have to specify through what kinds of mechanism you expect to get that result. And different mechanisms, whether it's the government, the market, uh, the Red Cross, whatever, they have their own individual things that they're good at and not so good at. And so you can't get the, the social justice result that you want unless you have the kind of uh, institution that's likely to produce that result. Politics is not that kind of institution. And yet they all implicitly rely on government. Yes. Redistribution of wealth, uh, adjusting, uh, uh, using legal regimes to adjust the proportions of various groups that get certain jobs. They all rely on government. And what's distinctive about government is it's the one institution that can send you to jail. Yes. All right. And that's the point is that's dangerous. We shouldn't want more government, more hands in the power of the politicians. Yeah, one of the, the, one of the real of the one, one of the real problems is that you have people making decisions for which they pay no price when they're wrong, no matter how high a price other people pay. Uh, Dan Andrews and Mark McGowan around? Anyone? Oh, they quit. Oh, okay. One of the most important fallacies covered by Professor Soule in this book, and one of the most relevant for Australians today is what he calls the racial fallacy. And nothing seems to upset Professor Sowell more than the modern so-called progressive idea that race and racism are the causes of poverty and disadvantage in our societies. When you take on this modern progressive position that racism accounts for anything, there are passages mm. in which you're angry. I felt that there are passages yes. in which there's emotion that is very close to this. So let me just read a little bit. Okay. Median black family income has been lower than median white family income for generations. But the median per capita income of Asian groups is more than 15000 a year higher than the media per capita income of white Americans. Is this the white supremacy we're so often warned about? I, don't, I think that the, the, the people don't look for, for certain evidence and therefore they don't find it. And so from, from the, on the basis of what they know at, at a given time, this may be very plausible. The problem is that you don't, what you really need are other people with different orientation who are, who, who, are, who are skeptical and who will then look for things and find things that, that are very different from that. And this is the problem with Albo's proposed disinformation and misinformation laws. If we shut down everyone who has a different view, a contrarian view, a rebel view, an outsider view, all the crazy right-wing nutjobs and left-wing nutjobs and libertarian anarchists and communists and socialists and conservatives and the religious right and whoever you want to label and, and shut down. If we stop the extreme and different views from at least being able to be expressed and for those ideas to be discussed and, and shed under the light of, of day so we can see if they're any good or not, we will, we will shut down a lot of disinformation and misinformation and wrong information. But we'll shut down a lot of right and important information with it like the fact that racism or race actually seems to have nothing to do with social disadvantage and poverty. So it would be a very, very bad thing to put race into your constitution, thinking that you were helping anyone get out of real poverty or problems. Even if every academic in every social science department in your country believed that to be true. The fact that there are various counties in the United States uh, which are among the poorest counties in the, in, the, in the country, and six of those counties have a, have a, a, a population that ranges from 90% white to 100% white. Appalachian counties. Yes. Kentucky, is, yes. Kentucky yes. and Ohio, as I recall. Yeah, and, 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 but mainly it's the, it's, 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 it's the hillbilly communities. Right. These are people who have faced zero racism. They are white. Absolutely. And they are white and, and, and zero racism. And also, they're, they're back in the 30s, when they did IQ studies, uh, their IQs were not only at the same level as those of blacks, uh, they had the same pattern, namely that, 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 the young, that the young people, whether they were 
black or hillbilly, uh, would have an IQ very close to the national average uh, at age six. But by the time they were teenagers, it kept going down and down and down because it's relative to the other other people in the, of that age group. And they simply were not were falling behind. Uh, so it was clearly not biological. It was it was social. But uh, despite that, the, these these hillbilly counties had uh, income incomes that were not only lower than the national average; they were lower than the average of, of black incomes for a, a period of of half a century. It may have been longer than that because I only went through half a century. But in every the study that was done over that half century, they scored lower, their family incomes were lower than the family incomes of blacks. So obviously there must be other things that cause people to be poor other than racism. Wow. Wouldn't it be terrible if a country got that wrong? You know, I don't have a lot of respect for academics in Australia. There are some great exceptions, of course, but I'm afraid academia in Australia, particularly in the social sciences, but also in economics, unfortunately, has become a groupthink monoculture of people following each other's tails, trying not to upset anyone so they can keep their jobs. The infiltration of one dominant leftist ideology into our universities is more than just a bad thing. It's a national danger of huge proportions because these are the people educating our teachers who then educate all of our kids. I'm not sure how we fix that. Maybe we need to look at private universities and change the funding models since public universities seem to have failed us enormously. Professor Thomas Sowell is 93 years old. What a brain. The new book is called Social Justice Fallacies and you can pre-order it online. Well, pre-polling is now underway in the Voice to Parliament referendum. The main poll day is, of course, next Saturday, the 14th of October. So what precisely are we voting on? What are the actual facts amid all the noise? Joining me for our special discussion on The Voice today in the Other Side studio is Graham Young, the Executive Director of the Australian Institute for Progress. Graham is a pollster and political consultant who pioneered the use of the internet for qualitative and quantitative polling in Australia. Graham is also an occasional columnist for the Australian and the Financial Review and a commentator on ABC Radio. Between 1994 and 97, he was vice president and campaign chairman of the Queensland Liberal Party, and he's an acknowledged expert in political campaigning. Welcome, Graham. Good to have you back on the show. Great to be back. Also joining us is uh, Robert Gregory, the CEO of the Australian Jewish Association, the more conservative of the two main Jewish organisations in Australia. Uh, Robert wrote recently in the Sydney Daily Telegraph about the reputation attack on his organisation waged by the Yes campaign after it came out urging a no vote. Things got pretty ugly and personal and divisive uh, pretty early on. We'll be talking about that a little bit later, Robert. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Evan. And not joining us today, quite conspicuously, is anyone prepared to speak on the Yes side. We approached the official media people for the Yes campaign no less than three times. The first time they completely ignored us. The second time they responded saying that they weren't interested and uh, we'll be passing on the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, And the third time we went back and and probed them again and they just completely ignored us again. I believe that's inexcusable uh, and it probably is all you need to know about why you should vote no. Uh, Nobody's prepared to come and sit in a forum like this where they actually have to debate the ideas against intelligent people who think differently to them. If your ideas don't hold up to that kind of scrutiny, then your ideas aren't worth anything. And that's why we have the Westminster system of government, Um, why it is so amazing. It requires opposition and a debate uh, that is built into the system to thoroughly put things to scrutiny before they're voted on. Not being able to get any support from the Yes campaign, uh, and, and I should point out that we promised in writing that we would do no gotcha journalism. We would have a very respectful debate on the issues, uh, no personality or cheap shots, and they still said no. So we then went one step further. We put out the call for other prominent unofficial Yes supporters to come on, and we got more running scared and more hiding. So after all that effort, I feel absolutely no obligation uh, to provide anyone from the Yes side a platform. So I just want to put that context. Um, Graham, I will come to you first. I mean, you're a seasoned pollster. Hmm. Um, you're a seasoned political campaigner. Um, 
What do you think about the strategy of, a, of the Yes campaign saying, well, no, we just won't enter the conversation? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a tactic that can work depending on, on where you are. So if you're a majority voice, refusing to engage with minority voices uh, can actually damage the minority campaign because you have a larger platform notionally. Uh, so they don't get to share in your uh, publicity. Uh, however, if you're the minority, which they appear to be at the moment, uh, then refusing the opportunity for some publicity uh, on the face of it seems like suicide. And, you know, if you, if you look at American politics, one of the secrets behind that highly unlikely success of Donald Trump was that he would go on anything. Mm. Didn't matter whether it was his enemies or not, because he knew he had to make up ground and he knew he could hold his own. Uh, I suspect that what's happening here is they had a strategy that they put together when it was sort of 65-35 and they're still running on that strategy. Uh, plus, as the, the campaign's gone on, we've seen that there is no substance on the other side. I mean, the go government could legislate. They could put in place a legislation that would govern this body, but they haven't. Why? I think because they deliberately want to leave us without information. I think the lesson that they learned from the last constitutional referendum, which was the Republican one, was that it went down because there was detail on the table. People looked at the detail and said, we're not like that, including people who favoured a republic notionally. And I think what's happened this time is they said, well, if we want to get this through, we have to have an in-principle vote and then legislate. And that's an even worse idea. Mm, okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the divide and conquer, I think, was, was, was brilliant um, from from John Howard and and well and Tony Abbott, Tony, Tony Abbott, Abbott yes, and Kerry Jones and uh, yeah. and Professor Flint, they do. They were the ones that orchestrated that. But it was always going to be the case because people know what they don't like. Mm. Uh, you know, you can sell them a, a castle in the air in principle, but then when the the dollars come in and they realise it doesn't have any foundations and the windows don't work and so on, they say, "Oh, look, sorry, that was that looked nice, but." We're not actually interested. Now you've shown us what's actually involved. Well, for our younger audience, the, the referendum uh, campaign really failed, didn't it? Because it was divided. The no vote was split. Sorry, the yes vote was split um, between those who wanted direct election of a president and those who wanted the parliamentary selection of the president. Yeah. They couldn't agree on the means. And, and, the, and that there was a, a theme there of elites versus the people. Mm. Uh, so... So one of the arguments that was used is we don't want the politicians republic. And, and this voice is a bit like that. You right. know, it's the we're the great and the good. And we're telling you people that you should vote for this because it's the right thing, the kind thing, the good thing to do. Uh, and don't you worry about any details or anything like that. Uh, and in the Republican debate, the idea that appointing the president will be put in the hands of the politicians, the elite, was something that a lot of Republicans didn't like. They wanted to vote on it directly. And I think you see a similar yeah. schism here. It's not quite the same, but it's similar that people are saying, well, you tell us what's going to happen and we might consider it. But if you say, don't you worry your heads about that, we'll look after it. Well, no, yeah. you weren't trustworthy during COVID. And people are saying, well, that's a bit shifty. Mm. And they're looking at the voice and they're saying, that's a bit shifty. They're looking at the Qantas uh, situation. I think the emotionality, too, in this referendum, uh, I think the Yes campaign thought that it was going to be an easy win, right? It was just a case of making everybody feel like they were a racist if they voted no. Mm. Uh, and that sort of backfired early on. Is that is that your take on it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's why I'm not surprised to hear you say that the Yes campaign didn't want to come today to debate uh, because I think it's pretty clear that their tactics are to attack the No campaign, to attack people as racists and try and guilt them into voting yes instead of actually addressing the other side's uh, very valid concerns about this major constitutional change. We've, we've got any number of Aboriginal voices at the moment. We've got a, an agency... Uh, NIAA, which has a budget of about $3 billion, something like that, yeah. uh, which is supposed to represent Aborigines. We've got land councils. We've got a whole range of organisations. In fact, as an ethnic group, it's got more representation, more organisations than any other ethnic group. Um, so if that number of voices 
can't change the situation for that little boy, why would The Voice, which is going to be run by the same people who've basically been running those other voices? The great contradiction of their argument uh, is, you know, well, this isn't going to be, this isn't too serious, right? It's okay. It's yeah. not a major change. Well, if it's not a major change, then why do we need it? Well, I mean, we're changing the Constitution. Hmm. This is a massive change. I mean, we're, we're not just altering a few words. We're adding an entire new chapter. And that's kind of what I want to get into uh, a, l a little bit later on with both of you as as well. But, Robert, I wanted to just talk about the Australian Jewish Association at the moment because you're the CEO. Yes. Uh, and you did have that situation um, where there was some pretty ugly stuff happening. Uh, and we have seen this voice. There's been a lot of talk about this being divisive. Um, a divisive thing. Uh, tell us a story there uh, concerning uh, uh, David Adler. Sure. Um, well, I think, so I, I had a piece published recently in the Daily Telegraph in New South Wales, and I wanted to write it because what I observed going on was that the Yes campaign, they weren't arguing on the facts, they weren't coming to debates, they were really going after anyone prominent who was pushing a no vote. And, we, and we've seen that with um, Warren Mundine, we've seen it with Jacinta Price. I mean, Warren Mundine said he, he was feeling suicidal from some of the- Awful personal attacks. Awful personal attacks. And so, yeah, the same thing happened. Um, the president of the Australian Jewish Association, Dr. David Adler, he's quite a prominent um, no campaigner. Uh, he's, he's on the board of, of Advance and he's, he's um, been pushing the no case. And so what they did is they went to his personal Twitter they scrolled back years, they took tweets, took them out of context, quoted half the sentence, not the other half, all trying to portray him as, you know, this racist, terrible person. And they did it to several other people. I mean, anyone who knows Dr. Adler knows, of course, that's not true. And when members of minority groups, whether it's, you know, Jewish people, whether it's indigenous people like Warramundine or like Jacinta Price, whether it's even African-Americans in, in the United States, when they speak out against what the left expects them to say, you mm. know, when they have conservative views, that this really gets the left worked up. They can't stand it. Yeah, minorities, yeah. you know, not voting and not speaking how they want them to. That's yeah, yeah, and of course, all minority groups, based on their identity, politics, immutable characteristics mm. of race, mm. gender, sexuality, mm. they've got to all agree, right? They've got yeah. to all agree and be left wing, and they can't possibly, you couldn't possibly have that diversity of opinion in within Aboriginal. It's Aboriginal. actually in the nature of being left wing, you know. Some people argue that left and right, in fact, Adam Crichton had an article in The Australian saying that left and right don't mean anything anymore. In fact, I think they do. No. The left are the collectivists and the right are the individualists. So if you define things in terms of the collective, anyone who steps outside that collective is a risk to it. Whereas if you're an individualist, well, that's just how people act. You expect them to do that. So there's no, there's no moral opprobrium that... Um, that attaches to it. And yeah. I mean, you see that in the, the union movement, nothing worse than being a scab, person who yeah. crosses the picket line because you think that the majority is wrong. Yeah. Well, and also I suppose you're seeing that in the Jewish community with the the, the two different prominent Jewish groups. I mean, you've come along, uh, the AJA has come along as a conservative Jewish organisation to challenge. Yeah, there's a big disconnect between, you know, some of, as you mentioned, the elites, the the Jewish community is not Im immune, just like all other institutions. It it has some elites and they have their point of view that they want to impose on, on the rest of the community. But the majority of the Jewish community, the people we speak to on the street, they're very concerned about the voice. So I think there's a big disconnect. And actually, well, heaven forbid there should be diversity of opinion. I mean, aren't you all supposed to think the same way, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the left can't stand that. And th the prime minister actually was at a Jewish function and he he said, you know, he's so happy that the Jewish community is so strongly backing the Yes campaign because he's getting this incorrect impression from these, these uh, just a few elites running these organizations rather than, and I think when the vote comes, you'll see in the polls that, you know, neighborhoods where a lot of Jewish people live, they're, they're going to vote no just as strongly as the rest of the country. That's my prediction. If you're a migrant who's come here to this country, in a sense, they're saying you're a receiver of stolen goods. You know, you're not just a second class person, but what you've come here to get is something you didn't deserve. And we're now going to reassert our rights. Because if you look at that um, uh, Uluru statement, they talk about sovereignty, which was never ceded. Mm. So this doesn't belong to you other people. It belongs to us. Well, I take, so it I should take strike migrant committees more uh, communities, I would have thought, yeah. more strongly than anyone else. Yeah. Oh, well. 
For sure. I mean, uh, we're inadvertent receivers of stolen well, property. They're active receivers of stolen property. Um, I take offence at being told I'm not indigenous to this land. I mean, where where am I indigenous to? If I'm not indigenous to Australia, um, that concerns me. You mean bit. we can't say go back where you came from? No, absolutely not. I came from uh, West End. <laughs> Actually, I was born in Canada, but I had Australian parents. So ah, okay. So you're not, I could escape. Well, you're not a real. Well, I could escape to Canada. Except it's worse. Got the same problems. <laughs> got the same problems. All right, let's look at what we're voting on exactly. Uh, let's look at the proposed new chapter that they want to put into the constitution. Uh, first of all, um, I remember Albo saying this was a small, minimal kind of change. We're we're just just an entire new chapter in your constitution, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's have a look at the. Uh, uh, the start of the new Chapter 9, the wording. It says, Chapter 9, recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, 129, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. I think a lot of people have glossed over the first line, that, that, that in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia. Hmm. That's the first time that's appeared in the Constitution, correct? Yes, there was a proposal by John Howard at the time of the referendum that we have a uh, acknowledgement in the preamble, mm. um, and he wrote it with Les Murray. I think Les Murray did more of the writing than John Howard, and for people who aren't across uh, Australian poets, Les died recently, but he's been the most notable Australian poet for a generation or two. Um, so it was brought up then, but it, that went down decisively, actually, mm. uh, more decisively than the Republic went down. I don't think we've had a, a, a big conversation about whether we actually accept as a nation, because this is a bit of a United Nations concept, this First Nations Peoples thing. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, perhaps reopen old wounds in a sense, but you, you, there is a possibility that you could, you could, you could make a case that yeah. This whole First Nations people idea is something that's just sort of been inserted into the Western world. Well, the first, so it says First Peoples, to be fair to it. The First Nations idea, that comes, I think, from North America, where you did have uh, substantial uh, North American um, uh, Indian, we used to call them tribes, and they called them nations. So you had the Sioux Nation, which was a collection, I think, of six different um tribal groups right um and i think we've sort of imported that holus bolus but it's meant to give the idea that these were more substantial organizations than they were when you talk to aborigines they use the term mob mm -hmm. and they talk about the mob down the road right um so you know you get the the jaggera who are uh and turbal who are the aborigines who were in the brisbane area um but they were sort of a loose language grouping more than anything else, I suspect, right. with these different mobs amongst them. Uh, and there's arguments uh, all the time. You know, for example, uh, move a bit further south, Mount Warning, um, there's two or three groups of Aborigines claim they're the custodians of that mountain. And some of them say, no, no, it's actually not that mountain, it's this mountain over here. Right. Um, so the idea of a nation uh, sort of regularises that and makes it seem grander than it really is. Certainly not a nation in the sense of how we would think of it today, no. a nation state or something like that. But I'll just say this this language is already leading to all sorts of racism, um, which we've been on the receiving end of. Uh, we've a, a prominent um, Aboriginal elder, who, who I won't name, when they saw that uh, the Australian Jewish Association was against the boys, they said, uh, go back to Jerusalem with your religious views or something like that. So we're already being told, you know, go back where you come from. I mean, ignoring the fact that, you know, most of us are born here, but that's that's where this sort of language can lead to. Yeah. It, well, it is. It, that's why people are saying this is, this is so divisive. Once you start talking about race and putting race into your constitution, you are cementing this principle that there is a difference between Indigenous Australians as defined here and everybody else. And that's a serious well, distinction. Well, it will give them superior rights. Um, so what your listeners have, or viewers have got to understand is that the chapters in the Constitution organise the really important elements. So the House of Representatives gets a chapter. The Senate gets a chapter. The Judiciary gets a chapter. The States get a chapter. Ah, 
the voice gets a chapter. Right. So if you're a, a status, you're a judge sitting there looking at this. Yeah. You're not going to say this is like the only other committee that's mentioned in the Constitution, which is the Interstate Committee, which was there to make sure the states got rid of their um, uh, individual duties and so on, and that trade was absolutely fair, and then fell into disuse because there was nothing for it to do. This is something that's up there with the judiciary, with the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and you're going to say, well, it's got obviously got an important job to do or it wouldn't have been given a chapter all of its own. It's not important, Graham. It's just a small thing. Um, okay. There shall be a body Sorry, to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Okay, next next part of the chapter. Number two, uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the executive government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, it may make representations to the Parliament. That's locking in its right to make those representations formally hmm. and to have them, uh, by impl implication, recognised formally, correct? Yeah. So it puts a bit of weight on the Parliament and the executive government of the Commonwealth I mean, the executives are worried because that's that's very broad. You know, who yeah. knows? You know, do, will police have to consider it? Will the Reserve Bank have to consider it when they're raising interest rates? You know, who? It's endless how how far it could go. Right, and it's these legal interpretations, right, that are the concern. I mean, we're going to get into this with the constitutional expert, Professor James Allen, next week on the show. But um, just from your legal knowledge, Robert, I mean, that is that that's open to pretty broad interpretation well, i'll tell you if you if you put something before the high court you have no idea how it's going to go so <laughs> right. you, you don't know how wide it can go um mm. it's a risk it's a real risk yeah. okay and and matters relating to aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples i've heard people argue that everything affects all legislation affects aboriginal and torres strait islander people doesn't yeah not? well normally you'd say if it's just them you'd say directly relating normal english you'd say directly relating right uh, if you say relating then the direct isn't there and um, basically anything could potentially be part of that um, now the government will argue as your second part there says that oh well we can tell them what they're to address um, well good luck with that because why have a voice if you're then going to direct them as to what they may speak on yeah it's um, that circular argument we were talking about it's before. that circular That's argument and there's plenty of respectable legal opinion that anything relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders could be quite a broad uh, category. You know, it could be um, even interest rates. Certainly a lot of mining would certainly be related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples because it happens in their, their areas. Uh, this I've is about... Foreign policy mentioned that we should have a more Indigenous-oriented foreign policy. Yep, so it's, yep. Yeah. Uh, they, they specifically uh, mentioned in the Uluru Statement to closing the gap. Uh, well, that's all about health and... Mm wealth and education and longevity and so on so you know if that's what they've got in mind it encompasses just about everything section three here the parliament shall subject to this constitution have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the aboriginal and torres strait islander voice including its composition functions powers and procedures that essentially is just saying that this is you know the parliament will decide how the voice is going to be set up um does that mean that we don't need to worry that it could be changed by any government in terms of its structure and, and its and its powers? See, that's even more of a worry. I mean, who knows what future government could come in? And which, once it's been approved, in what even worse way they could change it? You know, we could agree to one thing and they could make it much worse. Right. I, I think it means you should be very worried on the basis that the government could put that legislation into Parliament now uh, on the basis of we're introducing it, we'll only obviously take it through if the referendum gets carried. That would answer the question that people have got about detail. They won't do it. Mm. Why not? Mm. What is it that they want to put in there that they don't want you to know about? So you're saying they could have they put the yeah, there's proposed no, There's absolutely voice. nothing to stop them having a, a bill circulated yeah. for discussion. Yeah. In fact, one of the things about the whole process is the lack of discussion with anyone about, apart from Aborigines, uh, on the, the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart and this proposal. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about the constitutional referendum uh, for the uh, Republic, we had a, a um, convention 
we elected people to go to the convention. And discuss it on And discuss one. it. You know, it was widely ventilated. Whereas with this, we're told, oh, look, this is a kind gesture. You should just accept it. Which kind of reminds me of those Godfather movies where, you know, puts his hand on your shoulder. Ah, <laughs> oh, Sol, this is a kind gesture. I think you should take it. Yeah, yeah it's hard to refuse. Hard to refuse. <laughs> yeah. I do want to just look at the question itself that we're going to be voting on uh, on, on the 14th or before if we're pre-bowling. Um, the question itself says, a proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve of this proposed alteration? Could it be any less specific if it tried? Well, that's what they're going for. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ultimate vagueness, right? Uh, well, they, they could have left off the bit about by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, I suppose. Um, but th their problem is that polling says that somewhere around 90% of people would accept the first half of that proposition to alter the constitution and recognise the first peoples of Australia. Probably as long as it's put in the preamble and not in the constitution. In the body of the constitution. It's, it's the second part where the problem is because there is just no demonstrated need for it and it also, you know, divides us into two groups of people. Those who have this ability to make this representation through a body which is on a par with the Houses of Parliament, etc., and the rest of us who can just make our representations um, however, however we find best, but certainly not uh, from that, that height. I would have accepted that and, and supported that first line um, maybe six months ago, but not so much now, not now knowing what I know. Um, and I think this is where a lot of campaign groups, particularly on the left, they, they tend to think that if they keep pushing the envelope to the extreme, they're going to move the needle in their direction, right, of public opinion, right? It, it, it's not always the case. You push too hard sometimes, you get a spring back. And maybe, maybe, um, because this has brought a lot of things to light, like how much we're spending mm. uh, on Indigenous pro that there could be a, a quite a backlash. Mm. Do you think from, from this? I think that's that's, you know, one of the unfortunate consequences that, you know, the Indigenous community that really needed a lot of extra help, now they're getting um, a lot of backlash. You know, people are starting to question, you know, why are we saying this, you know, welcome to country so many times a day at every single thing? People are really questioning, you know, it's gone a bit overboard in the past. And, um, yeah, I think that's an unintended consequence that the left certainly didn't expect when they proposed this voice. Yeah, it's important to be careful, I think, sometimes just how much you... You do push. I think the Prime Minister has just been completely reckless and cavalier the way he's done this. Yeah, I think he, the whole, the, he hasn't attempted to prosecute a case. He hasn't attempted to, to consult. He's been slippery and tricky, uh, you know, all the way along. Just simple questions like one side only was going to get tax deductibility, for example. Uh, uh, the way the, yeah, the Electoral yeah. Commission has dealt with it, etc., etc., etc. Ticks et and not crosses, yeah. Yeah, and this is, race relations are a delicate matter. Yeah. And he's treated us all with contempt, and he's floated up, and I suspect that he doesn't really care too much which way it goes. If it goes down, then he'll have a permanently embittered constituency who'll cleave onto him even more strongly, and if it gets up, he's had a win. Do you think it might not go down, Graham, being a pulse? Do you think oh, there's still a chance look, that I, yes could get up? Yeah, there is. Um, we need to it's be It's not careful. a strong chance, but Australians... So our favourite horse race is a handicap. Our, 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 <laughs> yeah. be, our best-known running race, the stall gift, is a handicap. A handicap. Yeah. We like the underdog. We like giving the guy who's... or the girl who's having a bit of trouble uh, a go. So if the no campaign gets too triumphalist, and the Yes campaign just keeps in there, trying hard, showing they really, 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 really want this, there'll be a group of people that will start coming back and saying, it's going to go down, but we don't want it to go down by too much because that'll be too big a blood nose for them. So yeah. we'll shift across. Right. That's, that's the risk at this stage of the campaign with all the polls saying it's going to go down, people rest on their laurels, they don't turn up to polling booths, they don't man polling booths, they don't talk to their friends, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think the margin's too large for them to, to bridge. If it was a bit smaller, I think that they'd have a real chance. So it's an important warning to the No campaign that, we've, you know, people have got to get out there. They've got to 
keep the campaign momentum going, turn up for those polling booth shifts, if you like, talk to their friends, especially young people. So I want to just take a break and bring in our, our next uh, our guest. Uh, we want to have a look at how things are actually going for the no side among very young Australians. And we have Emma Goodwin, who's a 20-year-old commerce student from the University of Queensland. She's in third year studying finance and accounting. And Emma is heavily involved in the campus political scene at the University of Queensland. She heads up the UQ Liberal National Club and the No campaign. Emma, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Um, Conservative students, uh, 20 years old, are not uh, a common uh, animal, (laughs) shall we say. Uh, you obviously are facing a fair bit of uh, pro-yes campaigning on campus. Was that why you you decided to get the no group together? Yeah, definitely. So um, the union at UQ um, all voted in favour of supporting a yes vote on campus. So I guess to balance the debate up a little bit and, you know, give students the opportunity to understand what the referendum actually means, um, we set up the UQ students for no and... Uh, we've been running that for a few weeks now. Just every week, we'll go on campus and campaign, and um, yeah, no, it's it's been good. We've distributed thousands of leaflets. Um, we've had quite a good bit of feedback, and um, yeah, is it having an effect? Do you think young young people on campus are kind of not being just automatically rejecting the no campaign? They're actually thinking about it a little bit this time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, like, we'll have people who will come to us voluntarily and ask for a leaflet. Um, people who just want to have a discussion. I feel like a lot of people are curious just to know why we're voting no and just understand that actually, you know, wow, there there is a young demographic of people voting no and it is okay to vote no. Overall, I've been very surprised by um, just how much people have appreciated it. People have taken flyers. Um, People have told us, yeah, we're voting no as well. So it's been good. I mean, it goes without saying that you're going to get stirred a bit for being you know on the conservative side of any issue on a university campus i guess but um you you uh, you you say that you've been somewhat surprised by that it hasn't been just a completely negative reaction that you are getting good yeah. engagement yeah yeah definitely like i would definitely say that um uh, the, the tide is definitely changing a bit um with students on campus i would put that um in this whole identity politics thing i think uh we the young people are definitely seeing through it a little bit you know um every day at uni you're told you know um you you know you you've you've invaded this country um you need to say sorry um and i think people have been told a sick and tired of being told that they're a racist when they're not um i think at the end of the day um you know we've all come to australia you know um fleeing countries you know for, for opportunity you know, australia is 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 a very diverse multicultural country and and uq is is definitely that um so i think students like to know that you know actually no i'm not a racist and you know no i i i, I we are one and you know i'm voting it because you know i don't want to see division and I, I really value this country and i think young people are awakening up to what what, what will this actually mean um, for us young Australians, if this passes, so. Are the traditional sort of identity politics values of of everything being, you know, perceived through a, a, a lens of race and gender and sexuality, do you, do you think that that's generally starting to wane with people sort of 20 and under, maybe the alpha generation, the, the younger Gen Zs? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. I, I mean, it's... Obviously, very present in, in this referendum. You know, this is a classic example of identity politics, um, and I think, yeah, it, it's people are seeing through that a bit at the moment, and um, people have had enough of it a bit. I think um, people don't like being labelled for something that they're not, um, or feeling, you know, that we have to, you know, cater towards a certain group of people. Um, uh, when we, yeah, in in Australia we we are one. We're we're, um, you know, a group of multicultural um, Australians, and that's what makes our country so significant. It's 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 well. I mean, some of the pressure that's been put on multicultural communities. I mean, Robert, you might be able to speak to this uh, from the perspective of the Jewish community as well. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that the the way that the Yes campaign have, um, I guess, strong armed in a sense, uh, immigrant. Uh, recent immigrants to Australia, but also this expectation that uh, 
you know, anybody who's from a, a non-Anglo-Celtic background like like us would, would automatically be supportive of, of of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've definitely noticed, um, both in my community, and we've had conversations with members of the um, different migrant communities, the Indian community, the Chinese community. And the thing is, a lot of these people are just focused on, you know, working really hard, making a living of it, and they're not worried about these big sort of issues. So the yes campaign just assumes they're, they're in their camp, they're all going to vote yes. And I think we're going to see in the polling results, I think they're going to be very interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of these uh, ethnic communities don't want this division. They left countries where they had this division. So what, 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 what is actually fundamentally the other day? What is this referendum about? Um, yeah. And I think when we go to the roots of that and, you know, the fact that, yeah, this is, this is identity politics and, um, people people yeah people people are moving past this at this point now people people are past that what about um off campus i mean among sort of working 20 somethings you know and teenagers do you think there's a shift occurring is there a kind of a difference between you know uh, the more the more kids on on campus who are being educated more into identity politics stuff or exposed to it more and uh, kids who are not at university who probably just don't care, uh, as Robert was saying, you know, just getting on with life a bit more. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I would say, obviously, you know, uh, uni has always been a very progressive um, place. Um, and, you know, whatever your lecturers are telling you, you know, that's the kind of stuff you're hearing on a daily basis. You know, people are slowly starting to see through what this referendum is. You know, for some of my friends who have graduated um, uni, it's, you know, well, things like property rights, you know, um, this this campaign is being very explicit. You know what it means. It's 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 sanctions. It's it, it brings in a whole um, Trojan horse of different things. And uh, people in their twenties who finish uni and they're trying to get on with their life, you know, this stuff is a bit scary for us. Um, it's a bit scary for our kids what this will mean um, and just the ramifications of it all. But I would definitely say twenty-year-olds um, and of mine who aren't at uni and who don't see the push of this as much definitely they're more open to you know um, at least not being obliged to vote a certain way or feeling pressured to vote a certain way but just being more open to actually looking at what this debate is about so with your age groups the age group that's got to live with this stuff for longer than the rest of us um you know it's going to change it's going to change the way that we look at property rights and things like that in australia um it's going to be uh, pretty pretty important for you guys to to make sure that you get it get it right um yeah definitely i mean i mean what, what details do we have of this referendum? For us, it's a it's a blank check straight to the government. We, how many voices is it going to be? It, it, who who makes up the chamber? What the, the whole the whole um, just greyness of it all? It is very concerning yeah. for our generation. So, um, yeah. a, a simple apology to what what this could actually mean. I mean, it is quite is quite um, it's it's disastrous. It's disastrous. Yeah. It's a really inspiring uh, message to see young people, you know, speaking up. I mean, we, we know the polls show the no campaigns um, in, in the majority. So obviously amongst young people, there'd be plenty of young people uh, that are against the voice. But what, what has your experience been with the unions and the university administration? Have they been supportive of, of students that take a view that, that challenges theirs? It, it, it's very much, a, um, you know, what, what we're taught on a day-to-day -day basis at uni, you know, um, you know, starting with you know like you know a sorry um a welcome to country and then just how that progresses and in, in the different subjects that you do in the social sciences so i would say you know it isn't it it is quite a strong agenda of where the uni and the administration of uq sits um i would say it, it's a lot to push back against but um i i think I think also uni students that they're, they're they're open to the discussion. Um, you know, everyone's thinkers. Um, everyone likes to you know be able to have a friendly debate. So I, I would say that that has been very beneficial um, for for campus being able to you know set up across from the Yes campaign, have them come up to us. Up um, people come between both of us and ask us both questions, and just having to be able to respond to those people and um, yeah provide that balance on campus. So. Obviously, it's very one-way leaning, um, the UQ administration, but, you know, they've allowed us to be on campus. They've been happy to um, entertain, I guess, that d yeah. debate. 
Well, that's good. That's that's good to hear. I mean, I'm, my alma mater, the University of New South Wales, has been yeah. right behind the Yes campaign. I think they even lit up a building uh, for the Yes campaign. And I noticed yeah. um, also at UQ at the Social Science Building in the foyer, in the lobby, there's a massive mural on the wall of the Aboriginal flag and another mural of the Torres Strait Island flag, but mm. there's no Australian flag mural. It's quite extraordinary what we're letting the social sciences do, right? All right, Emma, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on Zoom on the, on the other side. We, we really do appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. Catch you later, guys. Take care. So, Graham, the, the, uh, from an age demographic thing, I mean, it's not surprising that younger people are skewed more towards yes, but also uh, I guess the education levels uh, as a demographic uh, um, element. Yeah, for some reason, if you're university educated, you're um, more likely to... Um, to be in favour of it. There could be a few factors there. If these days, if you're university educated, you're more likely to be female. Oh. So there's a male-female split on this. Right. Um, and you tend to get university uh, credentials so you can get jobs in organisations. Um, so you might be in the public service, you might be working in healthcare, you might be legal professional firms and so on. And a lot of those workplaces have taken on uh, this sort of stuff through their HR departments. It's not that a lot of the partners and so on, when you get hold of them uh, on their own after a couple of drinks, are in favour of these sorts of things. But you don't dare speak up at work because that will limit your prospects of advancement, uh, which then gives the false impression to people there that everyone is this way. Most people want to go along to get along. Mm. And um, so um, that's what happens. Mm, okay. What, why is it uh, that, that ethnic communities need to be mindful? I think, uh, uh, you know, Robert, in terms of creating division by race or putting race into a constitution. Sure. I mean, I, I can speak, you know, from my community's experience. The Jewish community has been in Australia since the First Fleet, but the majority of us came after World War II and we came from places by and large where race was an issue, um, racial division. You know, I, I can just speak to my family. I've got um, ancestors that come that that fled the Nazis, which obviously, you know, was a racial issue. That fled communist uh, countries, and under communist times, you actually had your your ethnicity on your ID card, your internal ID card, which there were quotas for universities for jobs that really limited you. I've also got my mother um, came as a child from apartheid South Africa. Her parents, you know, they weren't okay with that sort of racial discrimination. So I think ethnic communities especially sensitive to to the sort of racial division and, and where it can lead to. And once we put in the constitution, you just don't know where it's going to go. You just don't know what a future government's going to do, what quotas there are going to be. So I'm really concerned about that. It, it really is quite shocking, isn't it, that we're even considering it. I mean, sometimes I sit back and I think, what are we doing here and how did we get here that this is, that this is even happening? Well, for me, the most shocking thing is that race was put in the constitution uh, to try and mm. keep Chinese and various people out. Yeah. We thought we'd moved on from that. You know, we talk about the wi white Australia policy and so on with some shame. Um, and yet here we are importing it back in in another context. I mean, Martin Luther King, he had a dream that people will be judged by, you know, not by the colour of the skin, but by the content of the character. Yep, and absolutely. And this, then Bob Hawke echoed that again. Yeah. Uh, just goes against in the, the 80s. Um, he did. There is no, um, what is it, hierarchy of um, yeah. of descent. Yeah, no hierarchy of descent. It doesn't matter how many generations Australian you are. Well, that's got to also apply to 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 the people who were here first. Yeah. And, and the, the people that we're talking about, most of them are European and Aboriginal these days. You know, the, the, the amount of intermarriage is, is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so which side of their mouth are some of these people talking out of? And where are we going to draw the line in terms of, I mean, it's like you can't question anybody's Indigenous heritage. Well, hang on a minute. If we're giving special privilege, extra tax funding, et cetera, et cetera, or even membership to a special body like mm. The Voice, mm. we are going to have to have something more than the three-way test or the two-way test, depending on which one well, you're Well, you know, um, they're the sort of nasty, thorny questions you, um, you open up. Um, yeah, when you start dividing people by, by race and making race... Or when you, you give privileges to people. 
because of their their racial background. And I think Bruce Pascoe is an example of that. Yeah. This could be the end of uh, all identity politics. One could only hope. We might be waking people up. Could be a good thing. Well, (laughs) why don't we talk about that, the other side of the referendum, because bearing in mind my comments before about triumphalism. Where are we going? Don't. You haven't won until you're there. Once we're there, let's talk about that again. Yeah. Be happy to come back. Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a, a very, very serious uh, question, and I think something that we've got to be, as a nation now, really thinking about very seriously. They have opened up a can of worms. As I said, it could, it could backfire. It could go anyway. Um, but I think it's, it's good that we're having the conversation about identity politics and the implications of it long term. Because the argument is always, mm. it's, the, it's the condescension of the left, mm. the low expectations, mm. the racism of low expectations, right? Mm. Um, oh, we're doing this for the, the poor little Aboriginal people. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of very successful Aboriginal uh, descendants, uh, Indigenous descendants yeah. in our cities. Uh, the urban Aboriginal Australians are, that are doing very, very well. Uh, and this, this patronising kind of image of the of the impoverished Aboriginal person living in, 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 in the bush. And as we saw from Thomas Sowell at the beginning of this episode of the show, talking about the hillbilly whites in, yeah. in America and the, you know, the race isn't really the question here. It's, it's a question of disadvantage and, and we don't need to be solving the problem uh, on a racial basis. Yeah, and that's one of the things, interesting things with the closing the gap because what it doesn't acknowledge is that Europeans or people of European descent living out in those areas also have a gap between those of us who live in metropolitan areas because almost not by definition but by circumstance, if you live in a remote area, you're a long way away from a hospital. So just that very fact makes you more likely to die. And if you get seriously ill, less likely to recover. So there are longevity disparities of about 10 years between people in the major metropolitan areas and people in remote Australia. Um, So that's all sort of covered up and and confused in the way we talk about about these issues. I just wish people would focus on, you know, making things better for everyone instead of focusing on on those little, you know, differences between groups. You know, life expectancy is getting better for everyone, including Indigenous people. Sure, there's always going to be gaps between different segments of the population, Mm. but let's focus on the positive and let's try make it better for everyone. Let's improve everyone's lives. Yeah. So, so I have a minor bit of trouble with that language, make things better. There's, yeah. there's, in society, there's this creeping idea that we must do something for them, and it's not just Aboriginal groups, because they're incapable of doing it themselves. Yeah, who's the them? In fact, and, you know, if you listen to Thomas Sowell, mm. uh, he's all about, and he's an example, of doing it for yourself. You know, the opportunities have got to be there. The structures have got to be there that you can utilise. But this idea that somehow we owe it to them to make them better, I don't, with all due respect, I don't think that's tenable. I don't think that's how anyone gets to succeed, being made to succeed. They get to succeed by wanting to succeed and making them themselves succeed, taking the opportunity. 100%. I mean, you look at the world today, look at who's the leader of the UK, you know, people that came over as immigrants and they really make something of themselves. And that... Listen, who are some of the richest people in Australia are Jewish immigrants who came here with nothing. Nothing, yeah, experienced terrible nothing. traumas. And... and they're billionaires. So you can do it. Yep. So I want to talk a little bit about what what's next. Um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which we, which is the context uh, for this. If we could just look at the section, some of the sections of the Uluru Statement, uh, it talks about the the link to uh, the land and the ownership of the land. And this is something that's come up a lot around the question of native title and land rights mm. and property rights. Um, this link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the crown. Um, that's pretty pretty powerful stuff. Now, I'm not saying that, of course, the voice doesn't go that far. That's the Uluru Statement. Mm. But the Uluru Statement is going to be further cemented by the voice, in a sense, right? I think the voice will function as a government-funded lobbyist for these things. I think yeah. that's it will have a whole lot of staff, it will have a whole lot of resources, it'll put some of it into this, even though it's not directly within its uh, remit. I mean, that's legally that's incorrect, 
Um, so the Mabo decision recognised that freehold, and the decisions flowing from it, recognised that freehold title extinguishes Aboriginal title. So that word extinguished yep. isn't applicable. It has never been ceded or extinguished. Ceded, right. well, if, so that's if you're not occupying the land because yep. you've been pushed off or whatever, you've ceded it. Yeah. Um, so both of those things are wrong. But, you know, before we were talking about um, uh, this particular campaign, it's actually been working its way through the schools for quite some time now. Uh, one of the things that has to be taught across all curriculum areas is uh, Indigenous issues, and the kids are taught that sovereignty has never been ceded or extinguished. Which um, is incorrect. Which is incorrect. Um, but, you know, teachers who aren't lawyers uh, are doing this teaching, and they're teaching them other things about Aboriginal culture which are, are not wrong. So well, teachers who've they're been teaching them the shame about... Uh, the way Australia was colonised. Uh, now, Australia, when it was colonised, was colonised on a colour-blind basis. Uh, not only did the British say there'll never be slavery here, even though in some other areas of the British Empire there yep. still was yep. slavery. Yep. So 1788, they abolished it in 1832. Um, not only that, but the Queen, um, or rather the King, um, took sovereignty over the whole and everyone on the continent of Australia was a citizen. That meant that if you murdered an Aborigine, yes. you got exactly the same treatment as if they murdered you or if you murdered someone else who was European or, or they murdered each other. There was no distinction under the law. Now we're bringing in the beginning of a, a distinction. Mm. And, and it's, I think, one step on the way to separate sovereignty. I think that's what they're basically talking about. And there's a series of United Nations sort of, um, what's the word, not exactly treaties, but conventions, which are pushing in that, that uh, right. direction. And we have to understand that words like ceded and extinguished are not in there by accident. Let, let's move on to the next uh, part of the other resource. Well, it's not the next part. It's actually, I've taken this from the, the end. This is the call, right, that's being made. So we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. We also seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. A process of agreement making between governments and First Nations. With your lawyer hat on, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, look, you know, they, they use language that, that tries to confuse people. But to me, it just seems like they're trying to divide people. I mean, the Australian government represents all Australians, Indigenous people, non-Indigenous people. So why is the Australian government making treaties and deals with certain, you know, ethnic or racial subsets? Like, it's, they're just trying to divide the country. I, I can't understand it. That's what native title is. In my view, native yes. title is uh, basically the same thing as a treaty. Right. Now, what do treaties deal with? If you have a treaty after the end of a war, well, that's your territory, that's my territory. But I don't see why we need to go beyond that. Mm. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much for your time. I'm going to give each of you a chance to plug your organisations. Uh, the Australian Jewish Association. Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, Australian Jewish Association. We're the largest Jewish organisation in Australia on social media in terms of community engagement. Follow us on social media. We're on all the social medias. And you can sign up to our email list as well at our website, jewishassociation.org.au. Great. And Graham, the Australian Institute of Progress. You should make a declaration. <laughs> I, yes, I'm the director of the <laughs> You're Australian director. Exactly. <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> so we're a centre-right think tank um, uh, we take a broad view across Australia, but we're also based in Brisbane and we take a narrow view in terms of Queensland issues as well. Uh, we put the word progress in there because it's uh, a value that's always been championed by our side of politics, but which the other side has attempted to co-opt under the term progressive. Yes. And we think we need to wrestle that term back because the future should belong to those of us who want individuals to be able to make their own decisions for themselves and to have the tools to go out there and put them into effect. All right, AIP.org. Uh, .au. .au, yes. It would be embarrassing if I didn't know our, our web address for the AIP. Thank you very much uh, for being with us today on the other side, gentlemen. Really interesting discussion. 
I'm sorry that we didn't have a yes person here, but I think we've got to cover a little bit more on the no side. They can have their own forum uh, if they don't want to share ours, but I'm glad we put the invite out to them. Uh, and I'm not so unhappy that they refused <laughs> now that we've spoken. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Thanks Pleasure so much day, for, for having us. Great to have you. And that is it for the show. Uh, we will see you next week, Friday, October 13. Uh, that is the night, of course, before the voice vote. It is Black Friday. Um, and we will have our special guest, Professor James Allen from the University of Queensland Law School. He's a constitutional expert and he'll be joining us in studio. And we'll be able to go a little bit more legally uh, technical, I guess, on some of the implications of a yes vote. If we do end up with a yes vote, what is it going to mean? So it's a really good show to get friends to watch if they're still making up their minds for a serious deep dive. So do join us for that and you have a great week in the meantime.